We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today in the book of Revelation, where Jesus is giving John a glimpse behind the scenes. He's been showing him how he actively shepherds his church, that he counsels her. And so we've been hearing how Jesus comes to his church and sees good things and encourages her, says keep on going. And he sees some other things and he says these things need to change if you're going to thrive here on the earth. We've been realizing as we listen, and then he's telling us how we need to pay attention as his church, what this means for us as we evaluate our own health here at Renewal Mainline. But then in the book of Revelation, after he's done focusing on the church, he's going to turn his attention to the larger world in which the church lives. And he's going to start peeling back the layers from our civilization, from our sophistications. He's going to give us a glimpse of what the world looks like from his perspective what its goals are, what it wants out of life, how it goes about getting those things, how it thinks about him, how it treats his people. And from his perspective, he's going to say this world is ugly. That for all of its attempts, it just does not treat people well, especially his people. And it's actually dangerous for his people to live here. But before he does that, he wants to reassure his church to help us realize that even if we do get here, that somehow... That fits into his larger plans to end evil, to bring goodness to us, and to bring goodness to this world. So before God goes on to talk about the world, he shows us that he can handle the world. And he calls John to come up here, to come into the throne room of God, and get a glimpse of who's at the center of the universe. That he's the creator, the one who made everything, and that he made it all for himself. This is chapter 4 from last week. And we learn there, in that moment, that you and I are not the center of the universe, but he is. And as the center of the universe, he's not frantic, not upset, not harried, not scared, not anxious, not frustrated, not raging at what's going on in the world. What is he doing? He's sitting on his throne, ruling over all of creation. And the closer that you get to him, the more that you see of him, you realize He's incredibly beautiful. He's incredibly powerful. You hear that. You feel that. And the more that you see and experience of him, the more that you feel compelled that you just have to say something about how amazing he is to draw attention to him, to praise him. Why? Because he's the source of all the beauty and all the power that you've ever experienced in the entire world. He's the glorious creator. And in that creativity, he's even better than the things that he makes. So the closer you get to him, the more you have to talk about him. And you and I know what that's like. Sally made a great meal for us last night, and we thanked her for it. We talked during the meal about how great it was, and then we came back around about an hour later and said, man, that, that, that was a really good, we did this all night long. It was one of the last things Sally and I said to each other before we went to bed. That's what you do when you experience something great. You do what you talk about it, because in sharing that experience with each other, the enjoyment does what it gets more, not less. Same thing happens with God. The closer that you get to Him, the more that you see and experience of Him, the more that you will talk about Him. That's chapter 4. Glorious creatures worshiping an even more glorious God for all the amazing things that He's created. Then shift into chapter 5. And something odd happens. Something gets inserted into God's throne room. There's weeping there. Verse 4, John is weeping. And these are not tears of joy, these are tears of sorrow, real deep sorrow. And he's not weeping quietly. 
not just letting the tears trickle down his face. Instead, that Greek word there emphasizes the sound that comes along with, with this kind of weeping. And it tells us that he's wailing. He's lamenting in the throne room of God, not keeping it to himself. Verse 4, just to make sure you get the point, he's weeping loudly, standing there in the throne room of God, crying his eyes out, wailing. In the middle of all this glory, all this beauty, all this majesty, there is something deeply, deeply wrong. And John feels it at his core. Absolutely distraught. Wailing in the middle of all this splendor. Not caring that he's surrounded by incredible creatures. And if you and I cannot relate to his response, we are never going to understand what God is doing in this world. We're never going to understand why he's doing it. And we will never understand the cost that there was in order to do it. And so for us to draw a little bit closer into the throne room this morning, get a little bit closer to this God, we're going to ask three questions. First, why does John weep? Second, what makes him stop weeping? And third, what replaces weeping? Why does he weep? Why does he stop? And what does he need to do instead? First, what is so wrong that John, standing in the center of heaven, can only respond by losing it? Verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John sees God holding a scroll that's covered with words. And you have to remember here, go back into Genesis, how God created the world. That it was with his word, that he spoke, and things came into be that had not existed before. And so his creative and his ruling power come through what he says. That's what his word has already done in the past. It created everything. But now we have a scroll, and it's covered with what he says, words that no one has yet seen or heard. And if you keep reading the book of Revelation, the scroll does get opened over the next several chapters. And what you hear in that scroll are God's purposes for history. You hear the destiny of our universe and the destiny of everything that's in it. And you're going to hear that destiny through two main themes. First, God's judgment and his elimination of evil wherever it's found in his creation, along with the restoration of creation, the renewal of it. That includes the restoration and renewal of his people. As you keep reading, you're going to hear that God has a plan to rescue his creation from all of the evil that has taken root in it. Sounds wonderful, but there's a catch. There's a catch that goes back to the dawn of humanity. See, when God created human beings, he told them, Genesis chapter 1, to rule over and subdue this earth, to reign over it, but to do that in a special way, to chapter 2, to work the earth and to care for it, to nurture this earth, 
to harness its abundance, to utilize its resources by using the gifts and the skills that he gives to each one of us in order to what? To create a paradise for all the creatures that live here. In other words, God's original intent was to govern this world through his representatives, through creatures made in his image to resemble him and to represent him here. And after putting this plan into place of ruling this earth through very real flesh and blood images, God stepped back from that and he said, it's good. And his final conclusion was, it's very good. He declared that this way of caring for the world that he made is good. That this way of running the world best reflects the goodness that you find in him. In fact, that there is no better way to run the universe except through these images, these beings who are made in his image. And he declared that he is committed to running the world and overseeing and caring for the universe in this way. That's your calling every single day. That's why you're here. That's to guide and, guard and, and drive all the things that you do. So when you go to school, when you go to work, clean your house, make a meal, you go work out, you play with your kids, you play with your friends, you fix something that's broken so that it works right, you are doing what? You are to rule and to subdue. You're to use the mind and the body that God gave you to engage this world and what he built into it in such a way that God looks down from his throne and says, that's good. That's exactly what I would do if I were standing in your place. That's how I would do it. That's good. It's how I govern my world. That's what it means to be an image of God. To relate to his world in a way that reflects him and his goodness. That works and cares for this world and everything in it like he would. That's good. And even after humanity rejected God and his plans for them, God restated his commitment to work through humanity. Now he's going to work through humanity to rescue his world. And so he promised, Genesis chapter 3, that a human being would come who would crush all evil. He promised that the destiny of this earth still depends on humanity in some way. That there is no future for this universe, no elimination of evil from this world, no restoration of this world apart from someone made in the image of God. And yet here in the throne room of God, an angel asks who? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy not just to see what God plans for the future, but who is worthy to implement that plan, to put it into play? And the answer comes back, no one. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no one in any part of creation, regardless of where you look. The angels can't do it, they're not human. That would not be good. But human beings can't do it, they're part of the problem. No one is worthy. Which means two things if you think about it. First, it means that this universe is flawed now and it's going to remain flawed. That it's not good now and it won't ever be good. That it's filled with badness that should not be. And the ugliness of what has already taken place is now going to be with us permanently. 
that there is no recourse for you if something bad has happened to you. Let that sink in a little bit, standing before the throne when no one is worthy. Have you ever been mistreated? Lied to, cheated on, ripped off, stolen from? What would that be like to never have that resolved? To carry that experience, to carry that feeling, those memories with you into eternity? That instead of looking for a day when you can sigh with relief and think, okay, that thing has now been so well taken care of, it no longer affects me. I'm no longer guarded, no longer demoralized. I'm not edgy around people. I'm not distrustful, angry, bitter, prickly. All that is gone because that thing that was done to me that was wrong has now been set so right I'm not only free from it, I'm free from all of the impact that it has had on me. Instead of being able to look forward to that, if no one is worthy, then you are stuck now, forever, with what's been done to you. That's what's looming over John. The eternal presence of ongoing evil. How it's already impacted you, how it will keep on impacting you. And we need to be serious for a moment here and just recognize with each other that you and I have not experienced yet the kind of injustice that many other people have. The kind, take it all the way to the end, that causes them to lose their lives. At this point in his life, John's an old man. He's seen the church persecuted. He's seen his friends, he's seen the other apostles literally beaten up. Most all of them have been killed at this point. He probably knows of other men and women who love Jesus who are no longer around. He may know children who lost their parents because of persecution. For sure, he knows people who have lost their homes, their businesses, their life savings. He himself has been forced into exile. And he's now coming face to face with the reality that he will have to carry not only that evil that's been done to him personally, but all of that evil that he has experienced second and third hand. Think about the injustices that you have seen other people experience over your lifetime. Think about the ones you've read. Think about the ones that you've watched on your phone. Think about how just knowing those, watching them, how that twists and distorts you and how you live on this planet. How it impacts the way that you think about other people. How it twists the way that you think about those who have been oppressed. How it twists the way that you think about those who have done the oppressing. Think about carrying those experiences, those memories now into eternity with you. Never to be rid of them. Never to have them erased. Walk into eternity knowing that the losses you've experienced are never going to be replaced. Wrongs will never be set right. They will continue to shape and color how you live forever. All because no one is found worthy. You might start to weep loudly too. That's number one. It's worse, however, number two than that. Not having someone worthy threatens the perfection and the goodness of this world, but even more it threatens the goodness and the perfection of God. 
We forget that. We tend to put ourselves at the center of our own worlds. But we are not the center. He is. He's the one who made everything. He's the center. And therefore, as bad as endless evil is for us, it's much worse for him. See, if there is no restoration, if there is no justice in the real physical world that sets everything right that's wrong, if people live feeling forever that they were wrongly treated and that nothing ever made it fully, completely right, that's a reflection on the one who made everything. It's a reflection on the one who said it was good, but then was willing to let it end not good. It's a stain on his character, to stain on his nature. It says that he's not all powerful after all, that someone else is. Okay, someone else may not be as good or as beautiful as he is, but they are stronger if they can break what he makes and if there isn't anything he can do about it. They're stronger if he can't stop them, if he can't have the world the way that he wants it. And if that's the case, then all of those things that we talk about that are connected to him, beauty, goodness, justice, truth, if that's the case, then those things are not really real. They're simply ideals. They're ideas, nice things that we can discuss with each other, but they have no real substance, no hard-edged reality that can stand up to a difficult, hard world. If God leaves the world broken, then there won't be anything beautiful, good, just, or true. Because those things will have to give way to something else because he himself has to give way to something else. If he leaves the world broken, it means that he's not enough to make a good world that is able to be truly good. Which means there's a flaw in him. There's a weakness. There's something there that means he should not be worshipped above all other things. If he leaves a not good world, then what? He himself is not good. On the other hand, if he does something about this world that does not involve a human being, then he's no longer carrying out the way of ruling the world that he said was good. He's saying that plan to rule through human beings, that plan was not as good as it really needed to be. It was okay when everything was great, but it's not okay now. So now I have to do something else. Which means that God will what? He will have to change his fundamental approach to this universe. Now that may not seem like a big deal to you and me. We change our minds constantly. But we're not perfect. We're not fully mature. We do make mistakes. If you're perfect though, then any change has to be what? It has to be a change away from what is perfect. Fundamental change for God will not make him better. It can only make him worse. In other words, if no one is worthy, God made a mistake. He said something was good ruling through human beings when it really wasn't. He'd be saying that his commitment to human rule was misplaced. That he needed to rely on something other than that, something other than what he had said was good. Here's the dilemma that evil hands to God once it roots into this earth. It says, okay, you can either put up with a world that is not good, which means, God, you're not good, 
for putting up with it. Or, go ahead, God, make the world good again. But you can't use human beings because they're not good. But since you said it was good to work through them, that makes you not good again. That's the dilemma facing God. And so John weeps. Because without a worthy one, there's no longer a reason to hope for a better world, and there's no reason to worship this God because he's not as good as we thought he was. John weeps. Because if no one is worthy, life will never be right, and God will not be the same. He weeps because this world now reflects evil, and it's going to do so forever. It will never reflect a good God. In fact, evil will force God to change. Without a worthy one, you are left with a broken world and a broken God. And you're so utterly hopeless that the only reasonable thing to do is to cry your eyes out and wail loudly. If you don't feel this tension, you haven't yet understood the problem of evil. And you haven't understood why God has to resolve it. Why it's something that he can't just let go. Why it's not simply an interesting theological debate. Why there has to be a resolution, or else literally the universe starts to unravel because the center is no longer what it was. Our experience of evil is very real. It hurts us, it attacks us, we suffer under it. All of that is important. It's important to us, it is important to God, but we have to remember that evil is not first and foremost about us. Its target, first and foremost, is God. It's driven by a hatred of Him. It's driven by this goal of trying to take Him down. Yes, it impacts us. It attacks us, it uses us to attack each other. But in doing that, it's playing for much higher stakes. It's trying to squeeze God and destroy Him by using His own character and His own nature against Him. And in the throne room, as John is standing there, it looks like it won. It looks like it might have accomplished its goal, that there is no way out for God, which means there will be no relief for us. And so point one, John weeps. Point two, why John stops weeping. Verse five, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The elder just said, we found one. A human being, someone of the tribe of Judah, someone connected to David, someone who has conquered, who's overcome evil, someone who can open the scroll, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet when John looks, he's surprised. There's no lion standing there. Instead, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Instead of a powerful, overwhelming lion, there's a lamb. A lamb that's been taken advantage of. 
one who's been overpowered by something, by someone else, a lamb that has been slain. And yet it's not a dead lamb, it's alive. Whatever killed it couldn't keep it killed, it overcame death. And it's overcome now more than just death. Because verse 7, the lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This one who was dead but is now alive is worthy. God doesn't hand him the scroll. He doesn't receive it from God. He walks over to God and he takes it. He knows that that scroll is his by right. It's his in part because while being fully human, he's also fully God. Remember we talked about this before. Whenever John uses the number seven in the book of Revelation, it's shorthand for the whole thing, the entire thing. This lamb has the seven spirits of God. He has the whole spirit of God. He has the spirit's entirety in him. The lamb is filled with all that God is. And it's hinting that he himself is God. If there's any doubt there, all the rest of the creatures in heaven spend the rest of the passage worshiping him. They elevate him to the same place as the one who sits on the throne. Now in heaven, you only worship God. You would never worship anyone or anything that God has made. The Lamb takes the scroll because he himself is fully God, along with the one on the throne. And he takes it because as a human being, he has won the right to the scroll. He has conquered. He knows it. He reaches out to take it. God knows it. Doesn't stop him from taking it. All of heaven knows it and erupts in praise. Verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Did you hear it? Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. The Lamb is worthy because he paid something to ransom human beings. So that what? So that they could be a kingdom and priests. So that they could reign on the earth. So that what? So that they could take back the place that God always intended them to have. So that he, God, would now accomplish his purposes of ruling this world through what? Through humanity through a redeemed humanity. The Lamb is worthy because he has worked within God's original plan to govern this world through human beings and because he has restored his people, us, to that plan. It's not the only one now through whom God works. But now there's a whole kingdom of people who reign on earth, who are dedicated to God and to his ways. That means that God's plan is still in play. The plan that he said was good. It was accomplished by a human being who lived a life that was good. 
who paid a death that was good in order to pay what his people, these kingdom priests, owed to him. He paid what you and I owed to him. What we owe every time that we live a little less good than he would have in our place. Each time that we think, each time we act, each time we desire something less good than how God would in our place, what are we doing? We're creating a world that is less good than what God intended it to be. We sin against him because we sin against what he made us to be, and at the same time we damage his world. We make it something other than what he intended it to be. We break it. And every time that someone breaks something, Someone has to pay. Let's say I borrow your car, and as I'm driving, I, I get distracted. I'm not paying attention. I'm thinking about what the, the podcast is uh, talking about, or I get upset by what someone else is doing out on the road. I don't notice that the light in front of me has turned. I don't see the taillights indicating that people are braking, and I rear-end someone. What have I just done? I have not driven your car the way you would have wanted me to. The way I should have, because it's your car, not mine. And so I have sinned against you, and at the same time, I've damaged your property. What does that mean? It means now that someone has to pay. What are the options? First, I could pay. That's only right, it's only just. I did the wrong, I should pay to make it right. I could pay. Or, you might decide to have pity on me. You might say, you know what? That's going to be way more than you can handle. Yes, you're at fault, but I will forgive you. You don't have to pay. Now, that's great for me, but not so good for you, right? Because in order to forgive me, you now have assumed that burden. You now have to pay. You might decide to get your car fixed, in which case that's going to cost you. Or you might decide to live with it the way it is, but... Now it's not what it was. It's not as good as it used to be. If you try to sell it, you're going to discover it's not worth as much as it used to be. So whether you fix the car or you don't fix the car, if you decide to forgive me, you have assumed my debt, and you now pay. Now as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking there's got to be at least one person out there who says, well, the insurance company could pay. Which is what? That's just you and me paying in a different kind of way. Because the insurance company does not generate money on its own. They take our premiums and then they invest them and then they give us that money back. And if we get into too many accidents, they raise the premiums. It's just you and me paying through another person. Once I've treated your things in a way that you would not have, there is now a cost. A cost that either I pay or you pay. Same thing that happens when you and I take the life that God has given us and we live this life in such a way that he would not, that does not care for this world in the way that he would, we incur that because in that moment we break his world. And someone now has to pay to set that right. He can't just forgive us and let it go. Instead, to forgive us means that he decides he's gonna cover the cost of forgiving us. He'll pay what we owe. And that's what makes Jesus worthy to open the scroll. It's because he pays. He ransoms God's people by his blood, pays their debt with his life.
how he conquers evil. That's what makes him both now for and forever the lion and the lamb. He conquers, truly. He is the lion. By laying down his life, he's the lamb. He triumphs over evil, lion, by being crucified, lamb. It's his death that really does defeat evil, that restores the world. It's a real victory. He does conquer with a real sacrifice in order to conquer. And make sure you hear that you're thinking big enough. His death wipes away his people's sin, but it does an awful lot more than that. His death overcomes every force of evil that tries to ruin his creation. His goal in his death and resurrection was much more than removing sin from his people. It was the restoration of everything that sin has ruined. And so he has targeted every last bit of evil and every effect from every last bit of evil so that one day it's all going to be completely gone. And so he rules now in heaven as the conquering lion in such a way as to guarantee that that's the future you and I and he will have. And so now, just like John, you and I have to keep both together when we see Christ. You have to see the one who conquers, that he does so by dying. While at the same time, you have to see that the one who died is right now the present tense conqueror. He's both at once lion and lamb. And if you separate those two, you will not be able to live like one of his followers. Either you'll focus on the lion side. You'll be a, a lion Christian. You'll try to rule this world by force and power. You'll try to compel it to be what you think it should be. You'll want nothing to do with a life of sacrifice. Nothing to do with something that costs you personally. You'll be a lion Christian. Or, you'll be a lamb Christian. You'll focus on the lamb. You won't try to impact this world. You won't try to make a difference here in the fight against evil. You'll think that Jesus' victory is about just getting you into heaven, not about you reigning with him now, conquering over evil. He's both lion and lamb, which qualifies him to open the scroll. That means you and I have to hold on to both as we follow them. It's that combination that resolves the tension in heaven. It's that combination that then guides us here on earth. That's point two. That's what takes away John's wailing. Which brings us to point three. So now what do we do? If we're not going to weep and wail, what do we do instead? What replaces weeping? Three things super, super quickly. You worship. You engage him personally, and you live like he does. First, you join in the worship. Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. What are literally all the creatures doing they're worshiping. They're orienting their lives entirely around God, around the one who sits on the throne and around the Lamb. Why are they doing that? It's because every one of us orients our life around something. We can't help it. This is what it means to be human. It's to value something above all other things so that that something now guides how you think and it guides how you live. It's to have something be the thing that you want more than you want anything else. 
to be the thing that you are constantly moving toward, the thing that you work so hard to have, the last thing that you will let go of if you're forced to get rid of everything else in your life. When it comes to worship, you only have two options. You can pick something in the creation, something that God made, money, sex, relationships, success, peace and quiet, beauty, approval, food, something that God made to be a good thing, not an ultimate thing. You can give your life to making it an ultimate thing, or you can give your life to having the God who made all of those things. Those are your two choices. Creation or the Creator. That's all there is. Now, why would you choose the Creator over the creation? It's because as the source of all those other things, there isn't anything or anyone better than the one who's made all of those things. And so you can choose to worship him because that is the best that there is. But you also choose to worship him because of all of those other things. He's the only one that won't hurt you. He rules the world. might not always like everything that he brings into your life. I don't. But you can have absolute confidence that he'll only ever do what's best for you. How do you know that? He was slain. He was slain for you so that you wouldn't be. He died the death you should have died, paid what you owe, so that you won't have to. What's that tell you? It tells you that you owe God an awful lot, more than you'll ever be able to understand, but even more than that, when Jesus died for you, it tells you that God loves you even more, more than what you cost him far more than you will ever understand. Why would you worship him? You can't find anything better, anyone better, anyone who will treat you better to worship. You won't be able to find anyone to desire more than this one who desires you. Which is exactly why Jesus accepts you worshiping him. It's why he wants that, why he desires that. It's not because you're going to fill up some kind of need inside of himself. It's because he knows that anything else will hurt you if you take it and put it into an ultimate place. Anything but himself. He knows that worshiping him won't hurt you. That it will only help you. What replaces weeping? Worship. And personal engagement. Do you notice that everybody's talking to him? They're not just talking about him. They're addressing him, talking to him. Verse 9, worthy are you, for you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people, you have made them a kingdom of priests. What's that? It's personal. It's directed to someone. They're talking to someone, someone who's actually listening to them, who's engaged with them. This is what makes Christianity so different from every other religion. All of the founders of the major religions are what? They're dead. They taught things, wrote things. We can access those things, maybe learn from their examples, but we cannot interact with them personally. Can't talk to them. Can't ask them questions. Can't feel their love. Can't be comforted by them. Can't be corrected by them. Guided by them, led by them. Jesus is different. He's the lamb who was 
slain, but who isn't anymore. He's the lamb who's standing there. He was dead, but now is alive forevermore. And so Christianity doesn't say, well, you know, let, let's just talk about Jesus. Let's study his life, learn from his example. If that's as far as you've gotten in Christianity, you're not really, you're still a little bit on the outside. You need to press in more. Christian faith says there's a whole lot more. It's an invitation not to talk about him. It's an invitation to talk to him. To be loved by him. Yes, we study his life. But that's so that we know what he's like, so that we can build a friendship with him. So that we can be friends with a personal God. Someone who understands personally what it's like to be a human being. Who understands what it's like to be you. And therefore, we can be friends with someone who understands what you need when you relate to him and can give you what you need when you relate to him. Whatever places we can worship personal engagement and reigning with him, living like him. Earth is not always going to be under the dominion of sin and evil. There's a day coming where God's people will reign on this earth. And because that's our future, what are we doing now? We're practicing. We're practicing now what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. And so we're not waiting for the next life to join Jesus in his determination to eradicate evil. Instead, we dive in, we share that mission with him now. And so in the face of all that is ugly and wrong with our world, we praise him for all that he's done. We bring into this world, we bring into our families, into our schools, our workplaces, our communities, we bring into this world the knowledge that it has a creator, a good creator, one who has good plans for this world. And we bring into this world the knowledge that it has a rescuer, a ransomer, one who will pay any cost to set it right. This is how we conquer now. We follow the conqueror in the way that he conquered, which means, like him, we will have to sacrifice to live like this. Might mean sacrificing money, career, reputation, friendship, whatever it is, we do that to make him and his ways known because there isn't anything better than knowing him, except maybe being known by him. Lord Jesus, thank you. You have not come to tell us how bad we are to leave us in our sin, in our misery. You've showed us accurately through your scripture how far we fall short, but you've showed us far more accurately how high you raise us up, how much you love us, how low you bend to embrace us. You showed us what an incredible future we have.